the inadvisable trapdoor. Let's look at the French. Very, very imaginative. Let's look at the French. It's cheaper over time for the French. Let's look at the French. Very, very imaginative. Let's look at the French. Not just very imaginative. All sorts of other things. Pushing up Seven Sisters Road. The delivery just beyond the top of Finsbury Park. This was the last one. Last one, and then I'll head home. And I'll eat that lasagna. It was sitting waiting for me in the oven. All the flavours that had all night and day to mingle combine and expand into each other. Oh, I was just hungry enough. I knew it was going to be amazing. One more job. The heat from my delivery bag was taking the edge off the cold. My legs were on their last legs. One more job. Traffic was backed up as far as Holloway Road, but I managed to weave my way through, in and out, feeling smug on my two wheels, still able to make progress while the cars and the SUVs were stuck in a jam. There were sirens in the distance, and there was a helicopter circling above. I got up as far as the rainbow. Nostalgia panged deep in my chest. Nostalgia for a past that wasn't mine. Hendrix played the rainbow. Bowie, Queen, the Ramones, Stiff Little Fingers, Iron Maiden. Now it's a fucking church. Traffic hadn't moved in ten minutes. Nothing was getting through. There was a crowd. A, a police line. Blue lights and... something. 
something huge, something unbelievably huge was laying across the road. You're going to have to get right back, right back, please! Coppers were moving down the line of cars trying to get them to turn round, go down the side roads. I pushed my way into the mass of people, trying to get a clear look. It was about 40, 50 feet high. Huge. Two houses, huge. And it, it looked like legs. It looked like legs. Legs with pinstripe trousers like a giant had collapsed across Seven Sisters Road. Moving round, I could see more of it. The railway bridge was damaged. Some of the buildings had come down. What the fuck had happened here? Someone, a kid, just said, Who the fuck is Ken Dodbrov? And then I heard, through a policewoman's radio, the most disturbing thing I've ever heard. He was holding something, like a feather duster. It fell on the stadium. It's killed thousands. Reports that Ken Dodd, the comedian who died in 2017, has appeared at massive size in North London and collapsed, causing widespread damage, especially at Arsenal Stadium, where up to a thousand people are said to have been killed. The scale of the incident is unprecedented. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has refused to make a statement, saying that words failed him. Someone brought Ken Dodd back to life at vastly the wrong scale. He stood, looking over London, bewildered and frightened at his sudden return to life, unable to comprehend his vast size, unable to move without crushing cars, buildings, people underfoot. He cried out in anguish and died once more, buckling at his knees and collapsing to the ground, his feet in hackney, his head up at archway, his tickle stick taking out Arsenal and Manchester United supporters. His tick Manchester United supporters in one go. His corpse, the corpse lay there, a catastrophic loss of life causing unprecedented chaos in the city. He blocked roads for miles. Thousands of Londoners lay trapped beneath him, dead and dying. Rescue workers couldn't reach them. He was too big to lift. No crane could take the job on, and the idea of cutting him into sections just... No one was prepared to take it on. So they decided to tunnel. Tunnel through the giant corpse of Ken Dodd. It was a horrific job. Using the boring rig fresh from Crossrail, they dug through flesh and bone, sealing it up with concrete and a silicon spray. 
It was the worst job anyone could imagine. Boring a thoroughfare through a giant, rotting comedian. Some of it was already liquid. They'd find these pockets of gas and all of them could hear his voice in their heads. Even the young ones who'd never heard his act. London never recovered. Inevitably, over the next few months, he started to rot. Birds fed on him. The smell was overwhelming. The greatest city on earth, the world's first capital city, died. London died. Died because of Ken Dodd. The Inadvisable Trapdoor Did people actually attack you physically for just how you looked? They attacked me physically. They sometimes attacked me without speaking a word to me. Just rushed up and hit me. And uh, sometimes they would say various things. Of course, the famous the thing that everybody said was, what are you supposed to be? Are you supposed to be a man or a woman? To which I used to reply, why do you ask? What were you going to suggest we should do? This is the way. 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 The um, drama and the cruelty and the depravity and, and, and the jokes. This is the way. This is the way. If you have a candle burning in a room where there's a draft, it can't burn straight. This is the way. Why did you, though, you see, dr um, dress so flamboyantly when a lot of homosexual males, certainly at that time, were remaining incognito? This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. I couldn't do otherwise. I never had any feeling of making a choice. Once my existence was in question, 
I felt it has to be stated. This is the way. The Inadvisable Trapdoor. I'm just going to spend my time over here with the, like the, the vulvas. And <laughs> I was leading this pagan society and we're doing a, a trance meditation for one of the rituals. So we would meet on the third floor of, of an old converted church um, that was on campus. So you had to walk all these stairs to get up. Had everybody gathered in this giant circle, you know, closed their eyes and they were talking about, I don't know, going to some standing stones, you know, generic. <laughs> Find your nearest monolith. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like bringing them up to the monolith. For some reason, I decided they were going to meet the, the horn god or something at that point. I'm leading them through and I'm hearing somebody walk up the stairs. Really? You're how late for this ritual? Because it's old, old wood and creaky, creak, creak, creak all the way up. And I hear them like walk up behind me. And I'm like, I'm just, you know, keeping my eyes closed and focusing and seething at the same time. And I finally get to the people, you know, to the point where I can let them, you know, you know, in the trance meditation where you're saying like, okay, and now what does the God tell you? You know, so it can be quiet and, you know, people figure their own shit out for like three minutes. And I, I turn around to confront whoever is standing behind me and there's no one there. And then I, I take a whiff in and it smells like goat. Like, no, somebody's fucking with me here. You know, like looking around more. I'm like, who didn't like take a shower? Who, who is this person that I can't see? So I'm like, did anybody else hear? I was like, yeah, we heard somebody come up. Who was it? I'm like, nobody. <laughs> nobody. So like, this was the call. Like, all right, I'm going to start doing some horn god art, you know, because I've apparently had enough with the vulvas. And... So I'm working on this painting, and the night before, I had this crazy dream that Billy Idol was the horn god. <laughs> and, and like, and it's really stuck in my brain, and I've like been working on this painting, I'm like, I'm not sure if it's done, I'm not sure if it's done. And I take a break and I turn the radio on. Billy Idol. <laughs> White wedding, and I'm like, painting's done! We're good. So. The label that I've, I've managed to stick to now for over, um, my gosh, like 25 years is Modern Traditional Witch. For me, that is the union of understanding that I come from a very diverse background. There's a lot of history, a lot of tradition, but I'm also living in a modern context and being able to uh, adjust my practices necessary depending on where I'm living and what's going on. I'd say my, my grandfather on my mother's side was a very magical person. 
and the way he saw the world is particularly interaction with nature. Even though he was in Philadelphia in the inner city, he would always show me where nature was in the city and we would go on walks and explore and talk about uh, you know, how plants and animals interacted and just general respect for it. And from that that particular region, the the central Italian and Roma traditions, or some of you know that is evident in the practice of it. Even though he would say he was a very good Catholic, as <laughs> the house I grew up in was effectively haunted. I looked back; I think the records are it was built only in the 1960s, but uh, that particular area of New Jersey is uh, is a heavily indigenous area. Um, the Lenny Lenape Indians, um, Native American indigenous people through there. Um, we lived kind of in a uh, river basin area, so you know it was always heavily populated. But apparently the folks who owned the house before my parents bought it were some sort of occultists. <laughs> they found a giant pentacle in the four-way when they stripped up the... <laughs> the I remember like when we, they were replacing the linoleum and there's this giant black, red and white star like in the forum. I'm like, this is, this is amazing. This is great. You know, I'm like four or five years old. I'm like, I don't know what this means. It's great. My mom had a whole bunch of different experiences and they had the house, you know, blessed <laughs> a lot. I'm the third child and there's a large gap between my brothers and I, seven and nine years. So it was almost like growing up like, you know, an only kid. So I was pretty much a feral child in the backyard. Um, my father and my grandfather built me a little cabin, a little house, it was like, a, like a little Baba Yaga's hut. It would have been a tiny house by today's standards. And so I spent a lot of time like gathering moss and, and seeds and sticks and um, already like the little witch out the <laughs> So I think it was 14 when my brother's girlfriend gave me a copy of the Mists of Avalon. Uh, at that time, I was like, what? What is this? I was remember seeing so angry when I finished reading that. First, I was like, wait, there is there are other spiritualities besides, you know, the big, big three that present it in the world. And and Christianity killed them out. I mean, again, I'm like, I'm 14, so <laughs> there's a lot of hormones going on. You know why you do things at the full moon? Why? So you don't like fall off a cliff in the dark. <laughs> but yeah, but for some people, the new moon is when they want to do their practice and you don't have to go outside to do that. Or maybe it's like the 23% gibbous waxing moon is when you feel like that's where you want to connect to your practice. And then the solar aspect of it. Um, instead going to, right, what are the seasons? Look at this as a seasonal practice rather than tying it to a singular day. Like. You know, it's the drastic shift, or is it this sort of soft moment of almost achieving equilibrium? Not to say dictate it to you by nature, but you're in tune and listening to it so that you go, mm, it's not spring yet. Even though calendar says it's spring, it's not spring yet. You know because you're, you're smelling the air and you're looking at the trees and you're watching the animals and your body is telling you something versus being like, whoop, 
Alright, March 21st, off we go, everyone collect! Don't do the thing, let's do it in order, right? <laughs> I distinctly remember coming home, I think in third grade, crying because I was told my father was going to hell. Uh, with that, you know, I remember like, coming home, my mom's like, oh, we don't really believe in hell. Through all, all of that, I was definitely a small heretic <laughs> and a blasphemer. In The Witch's Cauldron, in that book, my editor said, do you really need all of these fire safety things in here? I'm like, for every instance I call this out, something has happened either to me or to someone I know. And so, yes, because you're in the moment and suddenly, you know, the table's on fire. I think you go to any occultist house and you're going to find a pile of dust. <laughs> Gotta be somewhere. This is sacred dust. And it's been collected here for, for a whole cycle to understand the study of dust and spirits. With so the space I'm, I'm in right now, this is my studio, this is my temple. Alright. So it's it's consecrated. It's ready. Um, it might occasionally need a dusting <laughs> and a, a cleansing out to prepare for it, um, which, you know, the, the preparation for it, whether it's pulling out the materials or cleaning the desk or prepping a canvas, right? That is the, the beginning of the ritual. That is the casting of the space and the calling in of things. Um, and then the actual meat of the ritual if you will is is the application of the art right to make to make the painting to do it and then to, to tie it up at the end right to kind of sit with it and see what the results are and tweak it a bit uh, so uh, to me that is that is part it's part of the trance process that happens it's it's part of the, you know setting the stage for all of this and to make sure the communication is is active um, so you know it there isn't a lot of big, you know, physical things that you're going to see, but it's something that instantly happens in my head for, you know, decades of training of like, well, sit, make an art. Now we're going to have a personal argument with myself. So <laughs> I'm going to put a podcast on so I don't have to argue with myself. The inadvisable trapdoor. Please consider playing it at very high volume through loudspeakers on the back of a flatbed truck while driving through sleepy villages at night. If you can't do that, please consider paying me for it. I currently don't have adverts on here because they're evil and I want to protect you from hearing their consumerist propaganda. So the only way I make money from this is through my Patreon. Patreon allows me to make the show I want to make with no gatekeepers or middle managers telling me that audiences won't get it. Currently I do all the production and all the editing. I'm considering employing someone to help me with some of it so I can put them out a bit more often. But meanwhile, my supporters on Patreon are giving me, let's say, the price of a pint of Camden Pale every month. 
allow me to focus on writing, producing and editing this rather than having to gig in Scarborough on a wet Wednesday night and then get the coach home. There are full-length versions of each of my occult interviews up on Patreon, as well as my monthly roundup, exclusive after-show parties and loads of videos and writing. Of course, these are tough times, and if you're skint, that's okay, because the people who can afford it are paying for you. It's a gift from us to you. Please just spread the word, leave a review, all that sort of thing. The algorithm must be defeated at all costs. Your support is really appreciated. It allows me to make deeply uncommercial stuff like this. If you actually analyse the lyrics of most um, pop, pop music songs, apart from the straight love ones, but the ones that go into the more mystical territory, they're talking complete and utter crap. People listen to pop music for an easy way out, just for enjoyment of the most shallow and, and tedious type, really. The, the problem with Western music is contemporary Western music is that it offers offers nothing except shallow pleasure, um, petty enjoyment and the promise of dancing the night away and drinking, fucking, picking people up, all completely pointless things to do. Uh, the culture, by which I mean everything that matters, has been dead and you only have to walk, walk down the street and you watch the people walking along. They just, their, their shoulders are bowed with defeat. They realise that they're living completely meaningless lives and that there's nothing, nothing for them to look forward to. They kill themselves by the admission of their defeat, by refusing to explore, by refusing to question. They want the easy life, the easy option. They want to be left alone to carry on doing what they're doing, which is always nothing whatsoever. And I think it's easy to get sort of too perhaps arrogant about it and say, well, they should be doing this and they should be doing that. But I'm not saying that, therefore, if people want to get out of this problem, that they've got to do this or they've got to do that or this is the answer, that's the answer. Perhaps the only, only way out is if you actually go up to them and give them a good kicking and say, why don't you fucking wake up?
Inadvisable Trapdoor presents Winston Churchill Was Jack the Ripper A true crime podcast investigation by me, Andrew O'Neill Part 4 Polly Nichols Whitechapel is a chaotic penumbra The borderlands, the geological strata built up from deposits ejected from the city a human rubbish dump, a cultural junkyard. But in this forgotten waste, lives interweave, hopes die and survival instincts kick in. Just get enough for tonight, just enough for a bed, just enough for that operation. The game, I mean, the game operation. You saw it in the window of the junk shop, unloved and forgotten, but not forgotten by you. You loved that game. My God, you loved that game. Long after all the other children had given up, you still kept going. Let's play outside, they shouted. It's really sunny. Come on. But no, you didn't want to. You wanted to play Operation. You wanted to save his life. The poor, wretched fuck. It was bad enough he had a light bulb for a nose, but now he desperately needed surgery, and where were the doctors? Where were the trained surgeons, the nurses? There weren't any. It was just you. You and those red, fat-handled tweezers on a wire, the only thing standing between him and death. So they could play outside all they wanted. You were going to pull out all his bones and organs and the butterfly and the piece of bread without making his nose light up. And now you were here, destitute and cold, craving a drink just to take the pain away. And you needed somehow to make enough money for a bed for the night and this old faded board game and batteries y- you have a few double a but this this needed d's the big ones ellen holland said polly had made her dos money three times already and spent it polly was confident she'd make her four p See what a jolly bonnet I've got now, she said to the deputy in her lodging house. The first person to see her after she was murdered was Charles Cross, the car man. Walking up Bucks Road, he saw what he thought was a tarpaulin. Yeah, I bloody love tarpaulins. I blo- no, I bloody love tarpaulins. I mean, there's, there's nothing finer than a good tarpaulin. It's a reassuring night in a minute. An honest object does its job, and it does it well. Yeah, a tarpaulin won't let you down. A tarpaulin won't break your heart. A tarpaulin won't run off for your next-door neighbour. tarpaulin won't say, Why did you keep bringing bloody tarpaulins home? I'm sick of bloody tarpaulins. There's no room. 
This isn't a house anymore. It's a bloody tarpaulin warehouse. That's it. It's me on the tarpaulins. Why are you doing this? You're throwing your marriage away. Anyway, it was it wasn't it wasn't a tarpaulin um, lying in the road. It was a, uh, de- it was a dead woman. I I don't collect dead women. I I, um, I won't have them in the house. Uh, so I went off to find a copper. While he was gone, PC John Neal discovered the body. Can you tell us what you saw, please, Mr. Neal? Oh, yes, sir. I saw her. Dead lady. Lying on the floor. All dead. And the blood was all there on the floor. And she was not moving. And she was definitely dead. Yes, sir. Dead like chops. And did you see anyone else while you were there? Oh, no, sir. I did not see anyone, and I had been there, like literally, like 10 minutes before. Whoever it was who killed her, it must have been a scary ghost. John Neal expanded on this scary ghost theory at length. He then went on to perform several dances, some strange mimes, then started shouting, actually I think probably she fell over. The judge explained the extent of Polly Nichols' injuries, and John Neal replied that, well, she must have fallen over onto a murderer. Polly Nichols had been strangled, and her throat was cut. Her abdomen had been stabbed and slashed. She was 43 years old, though said to look 10 years younger. She was an alcoholic, living hand-to-mouth in temporary accommodation, selling her body to keep herself in gin and broken biscuits. She'd been married and had five children, but she'd left her husband and fell into alcoholism and an itinerant way of life, moving between workhouses, DOS houses, and occasionally sleeping rough. This was the third murder of a woman in Whitechapel in the space of a few months, and the severity of her injuries and the way in which she'd been left in the open began to draw attention from the national press. There were no suspects, no witnesses, police had nothing to go on. And in little over a week, it would happen again. In the next episode of Winston Churchill Was Jack the Ripper, John Neal's scary ghost theory gains traction in the national press. And the 13-year-old Winston Churchill is given a detention for turning up to school covered in blood. Advisable Trapdoor is written and produced by me, Andrew O'Neill. The occult interview was with Lara Tempest Zakroff. Her books and classes and events can be found on lauratempestzakroff.com. 
the full version of our conversation that goes much deeper into her fascinating melting pot ancestry as well as her beliefs and practices is up on my Patreon, patreon.com slash androneal. PC John Neal was played by Benjamin Bancol Bello. He does a character called President Obonjo and he has a special up on ITVX. Check it out. He's really lovely. Thank you to all my new Patreon subscribers and thank you so much to my long-standing supporters too. You lock me in the world to me and you make this podcast happen. This is the inadvisable trapdoor. Spread the word. It's different from the old one, it is the new one.